I'm super excited. So 1 Peter chapter 1, if you have a Bible, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Um, as James mentioned, we are um, at our house afterwards having a lunch. So if you would like to come along, please, uh, please feel free. Um, we have catered for enough people and we preached on miracles during our Eagerly Desired series. So if we have an, an influx of the entire church, we'll just pray that the Lord will multiply the ham, cheese, turkey, and bread that we have uh, at home. So everyone is welcome. Please feel free to come and join us. Just let me know before you, you do that. First Peter chapter 1 is where we're going to be uh, in, in this morning. About uh, four years ago, my father passed away quite unexpectedly. Um, it was, we were actually in Denver on vacation, and um, I got a phone call that he had walked into the hospital on a Friday morning complaining of chest pains, and the next Saturday, so the next day in the evening, he had actually passed away. It was an incredible shock. Um, the door-to-door trip from, from here in the States to my sister's house is typically about 30 hours, and that trip was made even longer when the initial flight that I had booked was delayed by a day because of technical issues. And so that whole time, I was facing the, the real kind of heartbreaking reality that I actually hadn't seen my father for two years before he passed away. Uh, that's the consequence of us living in the States and him, uh, we, we, he and my mom were living back in South Africa. But I think what was most sad for me, what was weighing even more on my heart was the fact that my son, Cade, who's now 11, never had the chance to meet my father face to face. And um, it really kind of gripped my heart with an an incredible amount of grief. About um, 12 hours uh, after we had landed in South Africa, um, I was in my sister's kitchen getting ready to leave for the memorial service. And um, I was talking to her And my mom walked into the room and overheard me saying to my sister that I was was really struggling to keep it all together. My mom turned around and she said to me, keep it together. If there's one thing we're going to do today, that's going to be it. Now, before you think poorly of my mom, you need to understand a little about her. Firstly, she's British, and I think that says enough in terms of the context of what she said. So I had, I, I had mentioned to my sister that I was struggling to keep it together, and my mom said to me, she said, she said keep it together, that's the very thing that we're going to be doing today. And as I mentioned, my mom is that way, my mom is very controlling with her emotions, because number one, she's British, but secondly, she was born just prior to the Second World War. And when she was kind of sick between the ages of six and kind of 11, she was living in the city of Nottingham that was uh, uh, being bombed by the Germans. I mean, that's her childhood memories. If you've seen The Lion, Witch, and, and the Wardrobe, you, you'll remember that scene where the kids are put on the train to, sent out, to be sent out to the countryside. My mom was put on a train, said goodbye to her parents, not knowing if she was ever going to see her family again. And if that wasn't enough... We had, uh, you know, in 1972, our entire family emigrated to South Africa, and two months after arriving in a brand new country, I was diagnosed with an incredibly aggressive childhood cancer and was given given little chance for survival. And so all of this uh, tension, all of this emotion, all of this grief, all of these challenges that my mom faced, the only way that she knew how to cope was to do her best to try and keep everything together. 
I think, unfortunately, that is indicative of how a number of Christians feel it is necessary for us to embrace seasons of tragedy or seasons of difficult, you know, hard seasons or seasons of trial or, or seasons where we should be expressing grief. I, I, I think as Christians, we, we don't have a good theology, a good understanding of the subject of suffering. And if we do ever express grief or sorrow, we assume for that moment that we are actually sinning. We ask ourselves questions like, wait a minute, God is good, and, and, and if God is for us, who can be against us? And, and I'm the head and not the tail. I'm, uh, I'm blessed and not cursed. And, and we, we start to ask ourselves, where is my faith? Why am I feeling these feelings that I'm feeling? Where is my faith? I have the mind of Christ. I shouldn't be feeling this way. And in an attempt to be as free as we're trying to be, I think in those seasons of grief, we actually end up being more bound than ever before. Because we're not giving proper expression to uh, grief and to lament that is absolutely necessary in times of hardship and times of difficulty. I hope today to show us a different way to approach seasons of struggle and seasons of hardship and seasons of difficulty. I hope today to show us that in the midst of trial, we don't actually have to run away from it or we don't have to deny the fact that we are grieving but we can actually, if we embrace it in the correct way, if we, if we remember what Jesus has done for us and who we are in him, and as we're going to see, the fact that we are, are, are born again into a living hope, when we start to remember these truths, I hope to show us today that it is possible to experience an inexpressible and glorious joy in the midst of the reality of trial and difficulty that seems impossible but it is possible when we remember what Jesus has done for us. My, my goal today is to hopefully show us and free us up to grieve well when we need to. We're, as James mentioned, we're starting a new preaching series. Our intention as we build our preaching series at Church in the City is to kind of build in two main, main blocks, and, and that is a, an Old Testament and a New Testament Bible uh, a, a book that we focus in on. Uh, uh, God is not limited to our particular calendar year, but I think for those of you who've been around for this year, you will all agree that what seems to be the overwhelming uh, message that God is driving home to us is this message of faith. It seems to be kind of coming through time and time again, and, and we've defined faith this year simply as the ability or the, or, or the opportunity for us to believe or trust in God. Faith is the, is the firm foundation on which we are to live our lives. Hebrews chapter 11 defines faith as, as that thing of, of being sure of what we hope for and the certainty and the conviction of what we do not see. If you cast your mind back to the beginning of the year, we, we spent a number of weeks going through the life of Abraham, Genesis 12 through 22. And Abraham's life is a remarkable life to study because there are moments where, where Abraham has incredible clarity of the things of God and moments of absolute puzzling knuckleheadedness. And through it all, through, through the ups and downs of his life, the one thing that we learn from, from the, the life of Abraham, or the overwhelming thing we learn, should I say, is God's faithfulness. You see, friends, a faith journey, whether it's Abraham's or whether it's yours or whether it's mine, the, the, the great story of a faith journey is not how big or how small your faith is, but it is the faithfulness of God. It's the faithfulness of the one in whom we trust. 
And our New Testament study, which we're going to start today through the book of First Peter, also picks up on the issues of faith. Peter's writing to various churches, not unlike ours. He's writing to Christians, not unlike us, and he's encouraging them how to, how to work in their jobs and how to, how to enjoy relationships and how to live life in the face of an increasingly hostile and oppressive pagan culture, not unlike the culture in which we currently live. The essence of what Peter is teaching these Christians is the otherness of Christianity. I love making up words. And, and, and the, the call to, to serve Jesus Christ is a, is a call to, to live in, an, in a different way. It's a call to otherness. It's not a call to better thanness. We're not saying we're better than the world because remember, we're saved by grace and grace alone. It is a call to live differently. And friends, you know as much as I do, that requires faith. Faith is challenged, faith is tested, faith is enlarged, faith is grown when we face difficult seasons because we realize that we can depend upon God in a far more deeper and meaningful way than we used to before we were in a season of difficulty and trial. I love learning about how my faith can grow. I love trusting God more and more. I love crying out to God more and more in the midst of trial and difficulty because I realize that I can do it a whole bunch more than what I was in the past. I love what Peter writes at the end of chapter one. And it's not what we're gonna study today, but I think his words, the last couple of verses of chapter one are, so applicable to the culture in which we currently live. Peter writes this at the end of chapter one in verse 24. He says, all flesh, all flesh, the, the life that we used to live, the, the life where we were dependent on our, on our own abilities, our own desires and our own wants, all flesh is like grass. And it's glory, the things we achieve in our own strength is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Friends, in personal hardship that we may be in right now, personal difficulty, some of you are in the midst of some of the most challenging seasons that you could possibly be in, in the midst of those personal struggles and difficulties, in the, in the midst of us as a church going through some faith challenges, not to mention uh, the, the, the one in particular of, of us trusting for our, our own home in the city, a place that we can call our own, where we can have a thermostat and, 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 and air conditioning in the summer. Those kinds of challenges, or the challenges that we face in our nation, we see all that is happening in our nation, and I'm sure at times, like, like me, you, you must be thinking, really, is this where our nation has got to? In the face of all of those things, we're going to learn that it is possible for the word of the Lord to endure forever to stand on the promise of God's word, that God's word is, is his eternal word is, is spoken by the Father and it is breathed out by the power of the Holy Spirit and we can enjoy resurrection life in Jesus in the midst of some of those difficult personal or kind of family struggles that we are going through. There are two big truths that we're gonna pick up on today. 
truths that we speak a lot about at church in the city. And the reason we speak a lot about these truths at church in the city is because the Bible speaks a lot about these truths. The two truths we're going to speak about is simply this. What, who are we in Jesus? And what has Jesus done for us? Who are we in Jesus? And what has Jesus done for us? It's, it's, it's like our spiritual address. We drum into our children as they're growing up. What is your name? What is your address? Don't forget your name. Don't forget your address. If you ever get lost, you need to go to someone in authority and say, this is my name and this is where I live. And the reason why it is so helpful for them, it is so helpful for us to remember our spiritual address is because seasons of difficulty have the ability to disorientate us. Seasons of trial have that ability to cause us to kind of lose our way. And we need to come back to remembering name and address. Who am I in Jesus? What has Jesus done for me? And we're back to being centered on the truth of God's word. So firstly, who are we in God's eyes? What is our identity in Jesus? And if you look at verses one and two, it'll come up on the screen behind me, but you can follow along in your word if you, if you want. This is gonna be a little bit of an old-fashioned Bible study, as it were. I wanna get into the word this morning to lay the foundation for the rest of the series. So we're gonna work our way through these next nine verses. Let's read verse one and two together. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontius, throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and sprinkling by His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Before we get to, the, 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 to answer the question, who is, is Peter writing to? Let's just make a few quick comments about Peter himself. Peter is not like Paul. Paul was, a, was an incredibly educated man, a, a very gifted scholar. Peter is nothing like that at all. He, is a, or he was a lowly fisherman working his father's business until he had an encounter with Jesus that radically changed his life. You can read about that in Matthew chapter four. Jesus is walking along the the Sea of Galilee and he sees, he prophetically sees uh, 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 Simon Peter and his brother Andrew. And in that moment, he, he calls them, calls them to follow him. Peter was called by Jesus. Peter was close to Jesus. Peter was loved by Jesus. Peter was rebuked by Jesus. There were times when Peter failed to follow and he even disowned Jesus. But Peter was forgiven and restored and commissioned once again to, to, you know, by Jesus in order to shepherd Jesus' sheep. And that's the letter that he's writing. This is a, a pastoral letter. This is a shepherding letter. He's writing to, to people who are facing incredibly difficult trials and tough circumstances. Peter is actually writing from Rome to Christians that are scattered out into the outer edges of the Roman Empire. If you're good at geography, you can think of kind of the Middle East and then kind of up to the right, as it were, Turkey and the Black Sea area. That's where these churches were. I mean, think about this. This is a a, a lowly fisherman from Jerusalem, from Israel, who is called by God And he is making an impact in churches in the Black Sea region of eastern Turkey. 
That's what happens when God gets hold of our lives. And I want to say for every single person seated here, God wants to get hold of your life in a radical way where, where you are able to have that kind of a transformative impact in the specific way he's calling you to. Don't say, I am just a lowly fisherman. Don't say, I, I am just a housewife, or I don't have an education, or I'm just this, or I'm just that. Because God wants to do the very thing that he did with Peter. He wants to look into your life prophetically, and he qualifies you by virtue of his calling. That's what transformed Peter's life. Not that he got himself ready, but that Jesus called him. And Jesus calls each one of us. You'll notice in verse 1 that Peter, the, the, the people that Peter is writing to, he calls them God's elect and strangers in the world who have been scattered. If you, if you are familiar, perhaps not, but if you are familiar with the Old Testament, you'll recognize those terms as describing uh, the nation of Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament. For 70 years, Israel was exiled firstly by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. And, and although some of them eventually made their way back to the, the city of Jerusalem under, under Nehemiah, many of them remained, remained scattered throughout the Persian Empire and eventually throughout the Roman Empire. But Peter is not writing to Jews. Peter is writing to Christians. Paul refers to Christians as God's new Israel, people from every tribe and every tongue and every language group who have, by grace, through faith, have put their trust in the person of Jesus Christ. If, again, as I said, if you know your Old Testament, you'll, you'll notice that, the, that this theme of being exiled is a, is a theme that runs literally from the book of Genesis through to the end of the Bible. I'll just read a couple of verses from Hebrews chapter 11. It talks of Abraham being called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he didn't know where he was going. And later on in Hebrews 11, it says, the people of God admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth because they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Friends, that's you and me. That's you and me. We are, we are here in, uh, 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 in the world, and, but we're not of the world. Hopefully, you, you love the city. Hopefully, you have, you have put roots in the city. But there is, I, I'm sure you can att attest to this, there is something of a sense of, but it just doesn't always feel completely comfortable. And the reason why is because this is not home for you or for me. There is a city in heaven awaiting for each of us. Moving from Chicago to another city, as, as, as necessary as it is at times, is never going to take away that particular urge. Because what ultimately we all long for is not another city or not a garden with, with, with lower school fees or whatever the suburbs can offer. That's really not what we're longing for. What we're longing for is a heavenly city. What we're longing for is to be with Jesus. I have no issue with you going to the suburbs, by the way, if that's the call of God. Don't, don't uh, be offended in any way by what I've just said. Paul, uh, you know, sorry, Peter picks up on this in, in chapter 2, verse 11. He says this. He says, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world 
to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Essentially what he's saying is, is live as the citizens of heaven that you are. Live as the citizens of heaven that you are. Paul writes in the book of Colossians that our citizenship has been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son that he loves. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are a city on a hill. The exhortation from Jesus in Matthew 5 is not be more salty or be more light or be more like a hill. The exhortation is simply this, be salt, be light, be a city on a hill, be the people that you and I already are. We are citizens of, king, of the kingdom of God, friends. We need to live like the people we already are. This is so evident for Debs and I. I mean, you guys know that we've, we've moved from South Africa and we've taken on American citizenship and, and at times we still sound South African and occasionally we still, obey, we still behave like South Africans. But over time, we're becoming the people that we actually are, American citizens. We eat bacon with maple syrup. Who knew? We don't eat French toast with ketchup. Who knew that was possible? We're becoming the people that we already are. Yes, in South Africa, you eat French toast with ketchup. <laughs> More of that later. Look at verse 2 with me. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 describes how God sees us. And can I say, friends, we don't get to define ourselves. And I want to be strong on this point. We don't get to define ourselves if we are citizens of heaven. God gets to define us. Every time we start to define ourselves, friends, do yourself a favor, get into the word. Every time you start to feel the condemnation of this world, get into the word. Every time you start to feel the world putting pressures on you that you know are not from God, get into the word and remind yourself of who you are as a citizen of heaven. That I'm coming across quite strong, but I'm passionate about this, guys. Please know it's not anger, it's just passion. Verse two, we have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Wow. I mean, that, that, that is a sermon series on its own. And, and for the sake of it, because it's hot, we're not gonna be going down that, that, that road. I mean, I mean God, God, we've been chosen, chosen, by God's foreknowledge. I mean, that, that's a remarkable truth. The one thing I will say about this is, is this. Chosen to me speaks about, speaks about a knowing. God, God knowing us, an eternal knowing. God, God knowing us from even before the creation of the world. You are not seated here as a son or a daughter of the Lord Most High in the city of Chicago by chance or by your choosing. You might think your, your job brought you to Chicago. Let me tell you, that was God's hand. You didn't choose Jesus. God chose you to, to, to be a son and a daughter of, of, of the Father and to serve Him and to, and to bring His glory to the city of Chicago. John 17 speaks so powerfully to me of this reality of being known since the beginning of time. Uh, Jesus prays to the Father in John 17. He says, I have loved them this is Jesus praying. Jesus says, I have loved them. I have loved you. I have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus loves us in the way that the Father loves him. 
But then he goes on to describe that love. He says, you loved me before the creation of the world. That's how the Father loves you. You see, before God was creator of the heavens and the earth, he was a father who loved his son. And that's how God the Father loves you. Not as one of his creations. He loves you as a father loves a son or a daughter. And he's loved you that way since the beginning of time. We've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of the Father, and we've been sanctified. We've been set apart by the work of the Holy Spirit. It is impossible for us, friends, to, to confess Jesus as Lord unless the Spirit of the, God, of the Father, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon us. You and I have been set apart into a new birth. We're going to learn about that in a few moments because the Spirit of God has come upon us, and He is empowering us to become the, the, the sons and daughters of the Father that we are called to be. To live out life to the fullness. God the Father chooses us. The Holy Spirit sets us apart. But then thirdly, we find out why. To be obedient to Jesus and sprinkled with his blood. We've been chosen. We've been set apart for the purpose of obedience to Jesus, not obedience to a system of rules and rituals, not obedience to a, to a, to a lifestyle of rule keeping, obedience to, through relationship that comes by the sprinkling of his blood with the person of Jesus Christ. Friends, I, we, we, I remember a year ago, we spoke on the, uh, on, on, on the Exodus and I drove this point home and I'll say it again. Obedience has a context and that context is relationship. I know Jesus, and therefore I love Jesus. And because I love Jesus, I trust Jesus. And because I trust him, I'm willing to obey him. That's the context for obedience, not just submitting ourselves to a set of rules or rituals. So who am I in God's eyes? I am, we are, elect exiles, chosen strangers in this world, sanctified and set apart by the Spirit of God, called into relationship with Jesus, in which we love and trust Him, and therefore happily obey. And look at the result of that at the end of verse 2. I love the end of verse 2. If God has done all of this for us, if this is who we are, this is how God views us, the end of verse 2 is a no-brainer. Grace and peace are yours in abundance. Because God views us in this way, grace and peace are yours in abundance. In abundance. Can I say this, friends? Start every day in the abundant grace and peace that comes from God the Father. Every day. Even if you haven't been able to find time to spend with God, as you climb into the car, take 30 seconds and say, Father, thank you that your grace is new every morning. Help me to start this day in your abundant grace and peace. It's available to us. If God gave us his son, Jesus, do you think he'd hold back grace and peace? If he gave us the thing that was most dear to him, his son. Do you think he'd hold back and say, well, I'm only gonna give you a little bit of grace and peace? No. If he gave us Jesus, grace and peace comes in abundance. 
That's who we are in the eyes of the Lord. Don't worry, I'm not going to spend as much time on verses 3 to 9. Uh, we are going to go a little quicker through, through those verses. So let's jump into the second part. Remember our spiritual address, who, uh, uh, who we are and what God has done. Second part, this is, this, is what God has, this is what Jesus has done for us. So let's read together verses 3 through the end of verse 9. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love how Peter just kind of explodes in this statement of praise. Praise, I read that really badly. Let me read it how Peter was writing. Grace and peace to me in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, though through faith, uh, sorry, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith. The salvation of your souls. Friends, it starts off in verse 3. That you and I have been born again into a living hope. Because of God's incredible mercy. Born again into this new birth. Friends, it's not a little bit of religion. It's not a religious moment. I'm really doing my utmost to, 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 to grow in my understanding of things, not just exclusively church. I'm, I'm, I'm learning and, and exposing myself to, to, to learning as much as I can about other things, and that includes pop culture. And, and, and I've been learning about pop culture and listening to podcasts about, about pop culture, and I can tell you really arbitrary things about pop culture, which I won't get into right now. But the one thing I've noticed in my exploration is Jesus is becoming very trendy amongst celebrities. And I, and I hear what I'm saying, please. I, on, on the one hand, I celebrate that, but I, but I hope, I trust, I pray, it's not just a little bit of, I'll have a bit of Jesus. I trust and I pray that it's the reality of what it means to be born again, where, we, where there is a time, in, a date and time in history where the old Steve Sudworth no longer existed. I'm dead. I'm in Jesus. I'm clothed in Jesus. I've been baptized into the person of Jesus Christ. I've been fused, I've been fused and I'm, it's impossible for me to be separated from Jesus. And I have a living hope. Friends, to, to be hopeful in this world is to be, is to be quietly optimistic. I really hope the weather gets cooler in the next few days. But the chances are, it probably won't. But the hope in the Bible is not quite optimism. The hope in the Bible is absolute certainty. 
I have, I am, you and I are born again into the living certainty that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And the preaching of the Bible is this. If you have died in Jesus, you will be, you have been raised to life in Jesus. There was a date and time where the old Steve Sudworth died. And that same date and time, the new Steve Sudworth came to life. The man that was in Jesus Christ. What happened to him happened to me. It happened to me and it happened to you because you are in him. You've been raised to life. You've been, you, you've been raised into, into heaven. You are seated at the Father's right hand in Jesus because you are in him. It happens by virtue of the resurrection. His story is my story. And Peter goes on and he says, not only have you been born again into a living hope, but you have in order that you may get an inheritance. And this is another one of those massive truths which we don't have time to get into right now. But essentially, an inheritance is what God wants to give us within salvation. Inheritance is not salvation, friends. We have that. We are in heaven. It's inheritance is what God wants to give us within salvation, treasures in heaven as a consequence of living with persistent faith. But the point I want you to notice is this, whatever that inheritance is, and we'll, there'll be a sermon down the road that we'll touch on that. Notice, it, is, it, it will never perish, it will never spoil, or it will never fade because it is kept in heaven for us. Friends, we spend our whole lives trying to keep our treasured possessions from spoiling or from getting ruined. We bought a, a, a new car, not a brand new car, but a, but a used car. For five days, I was literally driving like I was the lead actor in Driving Miss Daisy. I mean, I was driving around the city so cautiously because I wanted to keep my treasured possession so safe. We do that with our children. We do that with our homes. We do that with our bodies. We work out so furiously because we're trying to keep this body from decaying. But let me tell you, it's destined for ruin and, and it'll eventually fade. But Jesus says this to us, the inheritance that he has for us, the inheritance that he is, he's going to keep it for us to make sure it never ruins. Not only does he keep our inheritance, look at verse 5, he keeps our inheritance for us and he keeps us for our inheritance. In this great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. That's what Jesus has done for us and, is, and awaits us in eternity. But now, very importantly, and we nearly finished, verse six, Peter gets to the, to the, re, to, to the reality of the here and now. In all of this, right now, in all of this incredible truth, this, this reality of this new hope, in all of this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while. How long is a little while? I don't know. How long is now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief? How long is it? How long is a little while, Steve? Tell me, how long do I have to go through this? How long am I gonna have to face just the, the grieving that is in my heart? When is it gonna end? I, I, I don't know. 
But the word of God says it is for a little while in the context of eternity. And I know that might not be much comfort or encouragement to you right now, but that's, that's the teaching of scripture. In a little while, for a little while, in the context of eternity, you, you, you may have had to suffer grief. That, that word grief is the same word that describes the anguish that Jesus went through in the garden of Gethsemane. That's not, I'm having a bad day. That's not I'm feeling a little, a, a touch sad. That word is the same word where, that, that caused Jesus to cry out to the Father, Father, I cannot take this. I cannot, I cannot take this call to die on the cross. If there is any way, Lord, would you take this cup from me? He cried out to his Father, Father, you, you've forsaken me. Where have you gone? He sweated blood. He was in anguish so deeply. That makes modern day Christians very uncomfortable. That makes me, that, that display of emotion makes me very uncomfortable. I don't think we have a frame of reference for that. I'll make some comments about that in a few moments. Some of you right now know this grief. Some of you right now are in the midst of some of the most challenging and most difficult seasons you've ever been in. Others of you, not so much. But if we understand 1 Corinthians 12, it says if one part of the body suffers, we all suffer together. And our friend, I, I don't want to teach on this, but I want to say, friends, we need to improve. We need to grow in the area of we all suffer together. If one part of the body is struggling, we come around as a body and carry that together. Notice what, what Peter is not saying. He doesn't say you, will, you are greatly rejoicing now because you, you, you used to suffer. And he's not saying, all right, you're suffering now, but a time of rejoicing will come. What he is saying is that we can greatly rejoice in the midst of being great, of, in the midst of grieving, in the midst of being full of anguish. It's one of those, those impossible kind of passages of scripture. Philippians chapter 4, the peace of God that transcends understanding. Do you understand the peace of God that transcends understanding? It makes no intellectual sense, but you, you know it experientially. What about Ephesians 3? To know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. That's an impossible prayer to pray. James, I pray that you would know the love of God that's, that is impossible to know. It doesn't make sense, but somehow we know it experientially. Is it possible for us to be in deep anguish and grief, yet be greatly rejoicing at the same time? I want to say, if we understand that we are born into a living hope, then yes, it is possible. When I flew to South Africa to go and be at my father's memorial service, I wept. I was in deep anguish that I had not seen him for two years, and that my son was, never had the chance to meet him. It, it, it was, it was a, a, a pain that I don't think I've ever experienced before. But at the same time, I greatly rejoiced in the fact that four years earlier, he had surrendered his heart to Jesus. And I knew one day my son would walk down the streets in heaven and he would get to see my father. Incredible anguish. Great joy. The world says that's impossible. The world says your hope is in, is, is, is in circumstantial things. Your hope is in your success. Your hope is in your career. Your hope is in your wealth. 
Your hope is in your friendships and your social circles. And when those things fail, our hope goes with it. That's why the world doesn't understand this kind of living hope. The story of Job is a remarkable story, but it tells us that everything was taken from Job. And Job, Job wept. Job, Job ripped his clothes and he, and he shaved his head and he poured ashes on his head and he fell to the ground and he cried out in anguish. But then it says this at the end of chapter two, but he never sinned in anything he said. And I think if we were to see Job in action in the modern, in the modern church, we would say, you need to keep it together. Where is your faith? You have the mind of Christ. And what I'm arguing for, friends, today, what I'm arguing for, friends, is if our, if our faith, if our confidence, if our, if our realization is that our hope is in Jesus Christ, that is not circumstantial, it enables us to be deeply grieving while at the same time greatly rejoicing. You see, the world sees grief and joy as opposing truths. The more joy I have, the less sorrow I have. The more sorrow I have, the less joy I have. But the Bible teaches something completely different. When I'm grieving, the fact that I'm, I'm born again into a living hope, grief presses me into the person of Jesus. It presses me into joy and hope. It's like a thermostat that, that kind of comes on as the heat gets higher. Grief, friends, is not something we need to be afraid of. It's not something we need to run away from. It's not something we need to harden our hearts to. We can actually learn something from it about God, about ourselves, about one another. I want you to notice in verse eight, and I'm landing with this. Verse two, this journey of discovering how to grieve well started with grace and peace. And if you look in verse eight and nine, it ends with glory and joy. It starts with grace and peace and it ends with glory and joy. Glory is the very essence of God. Joy is, I love this definition of joy. Joy is peace dancing. Joy is peace dancing. Peace is joy at rest. Joy is peace dancing. And notice the transition. When we start each day with grace and peace, when we start each day in the reality that we have abundant grace and peace, and we remember, no matter what we're going through, we remember that we have a living hope in Jesus Christ, then what kicks in is joy and glory. Grace, peace, joy, glory are all available to us no matter what season we are going through. I hope that today you have been freed up to be expressive in your lament and in your sorrow because at the same time, we are able to be gloriously rejoicing in the reality that we have a living hope, the person of Jesus Christ. We're gonna break bread together as a, as a church family. I've taught on communion before, and there are, uh, in 1 the, Corinthians, there are maybe seven or eight different expressions of breaking bread. Uh, 
enjoying the Lord's Supper, and we are doing our utmost as a church to explore the different aspects of breaking bread. Typically, I think if you've been around in a church for any length of time, you will know the expression or the, 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 the way to do communion it, it often kind of defaults towards kind of deep self-examination. Have you, be, have you been in those situations where immediately, as soon as you say the word communion, or as soon as you are invited to come and get the bread and the grape juice, suddenly everyone gets very religious and quiet, ref, don't want to talk to anyone, quietly get your, your little bit of grape juice and your, your touch of bread, and you go into this incredibly deep, self-searching uh, uh, um, moment. There, that is a legitimate expression, but it is not the only expression of breaking bread. The Bible teaches about celebration and we've explored that as a church where there is music and there is, there is an opportunity for us to love on one another and high five one another and celebrate the fact that God through his son Jesus has provided this banqueting table for us. There's a third expression that I want us to explore today and that is the importance of remembrance. Remembering what Jesus has done. And what I want us to do today is to remember the fact that you and I, those of us who believe in Jesus, we have been born again into a living hope. As we break bread today, I want you to take some time to, to cast your mind back on some of the elements of today's sermon, to reflect on who you are in Jesus and what he has done for you. So I'm gonna ask the worship team if you guys wouldn't mind coming up and then in a few moments, I'm going to invite you uh, to stand up and come down and get a, a piece of bread and a cup from my left, bread from my right. Uh, there is gluten, a gluten-free option on the very right, uh, left-hand side of, of that table if, if you need it. The, I want to just point out something to you. you are, it is going to be intentionally uh, busy. Thank you. And it's done on purpose. I want you to say hi to somebody while you're getting bread or juice. I want you to give somebody a hug. I want you to introduce yourself to somebody. I want you to, to, to not get religious as we break bread together. We are respectful. We are, we are in awe of what God has done, but we don't need to get religious as we break bread together. So can we do that? So I'm gonna ask you to stand up, come down, grab some grape juice, grab some bread, head back to your, your seats, and we're gonna break bread as a family together and then end off the meeting. Thanks, guys.